This is Circulating Ideas. I'm Steve Thomas. My guests today are John Huber and Stephen V. Potter, the authors of The Purpose-Based Library, Finding Your Path to Survival, Success, and Growth. John is an author, lean library consultant, and international speaker. Stephen is the CEO and library director of Mid-Continent Public Library. We had so much to say that our conversation spans two episodes. This is part one. Circulating Ideas is brought to you with support from Metrics and from listeners like you. With library budgets constantly shrinking, it's getting harder and harder to provide the resources your library patrons want and need. That's why the folks at Metrics Test Preparation created the Metrics e-library. Through their e-library portal, Metrics offers study guides and practice questions for over 1,800 different exams covering college entrance, graduate school, nursing, medical, teacher certification, civil service, I'm counting this on my fingers, I'm running out of fingers, and many other careers and fields of study. All fully customizable and at a fraction of the cost of printed books. It's like having an entire library of test prep materials all at your fingertips. So, save space, save paper, and save money with Mometrics eLibrary. To get a free demo and 10% off your first purchase, visit goelibrary.com and let them know you came from Circulating Ideas by using the promo code PODCAST. That's goelibrary.com, promo code PODCAST. John and Steve, welcome to Circulating Ideas. Well, thanks, Steve. Appreciate the invite. Uh, It's great to be here. We look forward to having a really good conversation. Yeah, so I wanted to get started um, just to kind of uh, center things on libraries and how you guys got involved with them in the first place. I know, um, John, you're a consultant, and um, Steve, you actually work in a library. So how, how did you get involved with libraries in the first place? You know, the, the, the quick and easy answer for us, and certainly as two authors who have written a book, is, is for me to say um, you should really buy the purpose-based library and read Chapter 1 because that really does explain how I got involved in libraries. <laughs> but, but not just crassly trying to sell more books. Uh, you know, for me, it was, it was really about um, – all my life, I always wanted to figure out a way that I could I could serve the public and figure out a way that I could um, uh, be involved in public service. And so, um, like a lot of people, um, I, I, I took a part-time job in a library. I'd been sort of working volunteer in libraries when I was in grade school and, and junior high. And I got a part-time job in the library, and I kind of discovered, um, hey, this is not bad stuff, and it kind of allows me to... Um, you know, do good things. And when I wake up in the morning, I can look myself in the mirror and know that in order for me to win, someone else didn't have to lose. And that's kind of a good thing. And um, so I went away to library school and, you know, 30 years later, here I am working in the library. Yeah, my, my path is a little different. As you said, um, I'm a consultant and my, my education and my um, lifetime career is, is as an industrial engineer. So what is an industrial engineer doing talking on a podcast about libraries? And that's a really good question. If you had said 20 years ago that I'd be on a podcast on my libraries, I thought I would say you were crazy. Uh, But it's been an interesting journey. Um, After cutting my teeth with uh, a major consulting firm at a school, I started my own firm many years ago, about 1986. And primarily what I did for a living and for a career was um, streamlining manufacturing, distribution, and retail organizations, uh, streamlining their service and 
um, delivery processes, um, designing assembly lines, and um, you know building a pretty good career from that. And then one day out of the blue, I got a call from my local library, the Tulsa City County Library. And I had been recommended to them from a, someone who knew the library and knew me, thinking that I might be able to help them. And, and the situation was that they were really far behind on delivering their holds to their patrons or customers. And since I do a lot of streamlining of distribution and manufacturing business processes, they said, hey, this guy might be able to help. And it, unbelievably, the meeting was set up for 9-11-2001 at 9 o'clock. And I, I walked, yeah. you know, I got ready, got, got ready to go to work or go, go to the meeting. And I walked in the kitchen and I saw the towers coming down. I'm like, oh, my gosh, should I go to this meeting? Well, long story short, I, I did go. And I found myself uh, sitting in a front row seat with the leadership team at Tulsa City County Library responding to to 9-11 attack. And you have to remember, we're from, you know, Tulsa is only a couple hours from Oklahoma City, so the Murray Building bombing was still fresh in our mind somewhat. And so perhaps we were a little bit more attuned, I won't say prepared, but maybe a little more, a little more attuned to the, to the situation. Well, anyway, I sat there and watched the, how they responded, and I was just thoroughly impressed. You know how they were going to, you know, put more security at the gates, and then more security protecting the drop boxes, and how they were going to communicate with their staff on how to deal with it, and how to communicate with the patrons. And of course, my image as a library up at that point was was you know pretty much the front doors um, and the circ desk, if you will. And frankly, I hadn't been in libraries much since college. So it was it was quite intriguing, and I, I frankly was hooked right then and there about the professionalism and dedication that, the, that these librarians were showing, and I was I wanted to know more. And uh, shortly after that, uh, Linda Saferide, who was the CEO of Tulsa at the time, took me on a tour, and very quickly I started recognizing things that were very familiar to me. And it wasn't long before I realized that libraries behind the front doors, behind the cert desk, if you will is a manufacturing operation, is a distribution operation, is a retail organization. And I had spent my entire career streamlining those kinds of business processes. So I thought, wow, I, I think I have something to offer libraries. Um, well, the project was a huge success. Um, they said, hey, you know, we need to go to, uh, we need to present this at PLA. And I said, what's a PLA? <laughs> I had no idea. And uh, well, we went to we went to Seattle in, in 2002 and we presented it. And here I am, 20, 17 years later, having worked with libraries all over uh, North America, Canada, uh, U.S., and even some in Mexico. So it's been quite a journey. And uh, frankly, I love libraries, and, and I'm thrilled at the turn my career took. And how did the two of you meet in the first place? I assume you didn't just bump into each other and write a book. No, that's exactly how it happened. No, no, I'm kidding. Uh, no, what what happened was John and I, um, we keep talking about this because I have this vague memory of actually meeting John in a uh, in an exhibit hall when he was sort of talking about process improvement and some of the sort of early days 
following uh, you, you know the the Tulsa uh, city county stuff and and the presentation in Seattle but I can't really put my finger on that specifically but what really drove this more than anything else was um, was holds uh, Midcontinent Public Library has always been a strong believer in resource sharing uh, we don't necessarily believe that resource sharing is a is a failure um, in, in collection development. We just think that as big as our district is, we have about 800,000 people, we are truly an urban, suburban, exurban, and rural library district. And so that we just cannot get everything that everyone wants. And so we have a distributed collection. We don't have a central library. We do a lot of internal resource sharing, you know, branch to branch. But then, of course, we also do a lot of external uh, interlibrary loan as well. And so, uh, you know, OCLC will normally suggest that we are one of the top ten borrowers and lenders. Um, and that's just our external stuff. Our internal, we do a lot as well. And so we were running into, um, we, I, I don't want to say that we were running into issues in terms of lag. It's not like it was taking us a long time to process or to get through our interlibrary loan, but, but there was a lot of excess capacity. Um, we had, our, my, the previous director, when I was the assistant director, the previous director happened to have a background in industrial engineering. And so he and I would, were always looking at process improvement and ways that we could make things streamline and make things work better. And so um, uh, we were, we had just done an internal process improvement of our cataloging and processing division and, our, and activities. And we were starting to look at the amount of overhead associated with the routing of materials. And, um, and we had heard um, that we had come up with a couple of ideas, but we had heard that the Johnson County Library, neighboring us to, to the west, had employed John um, to help with um, process improvement and to help them with streamlining their hold system. And so we went over and saw what Johnson County was doing and was blown away. Uh, it was just incredible. Um, and so we then brought John in and started um, um, uh, with that process, and and that was a that was a huge success. I mean, what we ended up doing, I'll let John weigh in as well. But what we ended up doing with that process is we ended up saving in terms of, uh, you know, uh, actual um, uh, costs that we could that we could document in terms of um, um, actual costs as well as opportunity costs in in the neighborhood of uh, over six hundred thousand dollars annually. Um, just by uh, employing things like one touch rule and using our uh, using the uh, uh, label uh, the, the printed label system as opposed to handwriting and and banning all rubber bands from our from our process <laughs> and when we got all of that stuff done um, we actually saved enough money that we were able to theoretically not technically what we did, but theoretically we would have been able to open a brand new unit of service, use all those savings to pay for the staff to open that unit of service, which, which was our Woodneath Library Center. We actually did open a new library, no new staff costs, and a lot of that was because of the opportunity costs and, and real savings costs that, that John helped us uh, realize. So that, that's kind of how we met and our first great success, and you know, Obviously, when you have a level of success like that, uh, you want to figure out more things that you can do with this guy. Well, geez, I don't have much to add to that. That was pretty well summarized. <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, 
I, I will say that um, what I do, the methodology that I have, is based on uh, something that came out of the 1970s with the Toyota production system. Toyota had, as for those of my age, remember things coming out of Japan were not very high quality. Uh, and Japan wanted to change that. So they brought in some consultants signing up from the U.S. and said, what can we do better? How can we improve it? And the result was this thing called the Toyota production system. And in the early 80s, um, the consulting firm I was working for at the time wanted me to learn this Toyota production system and introduce it along with 13 other consultants I was working with, introduce it to the, to the United States. And that's what we did. Uh, it's gone through a number of names since then, and now it's called Lean, which probably a lot of your listeners have heard of. And that's primarily what I what I do is Lean Lean Library Management. Back then, it was Lean Manufacturing Management. And the concept is uh, what when which I applied in Tulsa, Johnson County, and New York Public, and 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 Midcontinent, and so forth is that uh, traditionally managers see if you reduce my costs, my budgets. Um, service will will fail. Service will be reduced. I won't be able to service my customers as well if you reduce my cost. And Lean actually says the opposite. It flips it on the head. Lean says if you if you dramatically improve your customer service, your costs will go down, and then hopefully, through those costs that you reduce, you can reinvest into other things. And Steve Steve is the classic perfect example of of how we did that. Uh, we eliminated a lot of excess uh, steps, material handling steps, if you will, with this concept that I call the one-and-done holes label, and saved a great deal of clerical time. And as he said, he was able to use that money to fund an entire new library. So that's that's the perfect example of, of Lean. Yeah, and you, you had previously written a book uh, about Lean Library Management, and that's it sort of it makes up the first chapter of this new book, purpose-based library. What made you decide that you wanted to expand on those concepts from the first book and make it into this purpose-based library book? You know, we were celebrating. I mean, and obviously, if you were saving six hundred thousand dollars a year, you'd be celebrating too. So John Absolutely. and I went and 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 had dinner at a steakhouse in Kansas City, and we were talking about you know the great things that we that that we were doing uh, with with this. And, and sort of executing the vision of how to employ uh, lean principles. And we got to talking about this whole notion of, you know, what, what is the purpose of, of a library? What's a library here for and what's a library supposed to be doing? And, and keep in mind that when we were having the, these conversations, if, if my timing's right, it was, you know, shortly after uh, 2008. So, so, you know, the economy was not in great shape. Uh, that that libraries were sort of you know under siege under threat, and and what a lot of library folks were saying you know are, are like you know city manager folks mayors people like that is well we got to cut costs we got to cut costs let's get rid of the libraries because libraries don't do anything anyhow, and and what and what John and I kept saying is no I mean it's it, it, it's the point that libraries if you can if you can sort of sop up. Um, some of that excess capacity through employing things like lean, then it's not only that you can operate more efficiently during downtimes, but that you can also free up capacity to then start doing more interesting and exciting things. So it's not about you know putting books on the shelf, which frankly doesn't get people up out of bed in the morning. It's about you know teaching that that three year old his or her shapes, 
so that then they can become kindergarten ready. And then when they go to school, they can be just as successful as the kid who's been going to the Montessori the entire time. I mean, that's the type of thing that jazzes people up and get them really excited about coming to, coming to work and being a librarian. And so, so I think as we were celebrating and as we were having this dinner and we started talking about what is it that you do next, I mean, this is, you know, John was already had this tremendous success with, the, with his Lean Library Management book. It became very obvious, though, that we needed to begin to get people thinking about librarianship, employing Lean, you know, kind of as you were saying, but also what do you actually do with this once you get this done? And, and what, what ended up is that we sort of came up with this sort of manifesto for 21st century libraries. Um, at least that's my recollection. John, what, what, what do you remember about the migration from one book to the next? Yeah, it, it really um, stems from your story in some ways about how successful we were with you and, and reducing a lot of costs, but yet you were able to reinvest it for growth. Unfortunately, many of my other clients and, and non-clients that I was aware of were not necessarily taking that path because of the budget pressures, because of the um, images of city county managers or those who fund libraries, that libraries are simply book distributors. And when it comes to the ranking of who we're going to fund, fire, sewer, water, whoever, libraries tend to go to the bottom. I think you've told me that many times, Steve. And, and here I was uh, as a major tool, if you will, that was helping libraries reduce reduce their costs by improving customer service. It, it's a good thing. It's a needed thing. But I was also watching staffs get reduced. I mean, I had one library where they had fired all of their reference librarians and asked them to re reapply for new jobs because they didn't feel like they needed them anymore. And so for me, the book came out of fear, uh, fear for the future of libraries. And uh, I remember, in some ways, I sought Steve out because I was I, I saw these paradoxes that were going on in the library world. You know, the, the paradox of self self service customers, staffless, if you will, um, the the lack of marketing in libraries versus the image that the public or the city managers have or the people who fund you have. And so there was a certain amount of fear that I had that, you know, what is the future of libraries if we continue down this path? And, and I'd actually like to put an explanation point on that, uh, jumping forward from that time to now. Uh, in This March, I'm going to be headed to um, Copenhagen and North Jutland and Denmark to get some workshops. And in my research preparing for these workshops, um, I learned some things that, that quite surprised me. Um, Steve is aware of this, so it doesn't surprise him, but for me it was quite surprising. Over the last two decades, they have shut down over 60% of their public libraries, their traditional public libraries. And they went from 845 libraries to 319. Then they replaced that with uh, what they call open libraries, which are staffless libraries. And I believe they've added, there's my numbers, they've added 297 open libraries. And they've reduced the overall staff hours for the entire Denmark, if you will, by 25%. So now going back to that time where, where Steve and I were talking about the book or had that dinner, I saw that future for U.S. libraries, uh, these staffless libraries. It seemed like it was where libraries were going to go because there was so much focus on book distribution and warehousing and not necessarily the focus of what else libraries do. 
And so I, I was very excited to, to seek out Steve and have this conversation because I had some thoughts as well. But Steve, you know, has run, you know, he's, you know, he's well-respected director of a, of a large library. So I really wanted to hear what he thought. And it was a wonderful night because it was like sparks flying. I mean, we really were jazzing off each other, if you will, with great ideas and thoughts. And uh, so we said, I said, Steve, we need to write a book. Uh, we, need to, we need to get a message out. So that's, that's how it started. Yeah, and a lot of times libraries, you, you talk about this in the book, will put forward their mission statement, but you guys make a differentiation between a purpose and a mission. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, I actually sure. thought about that a lot this morning. Um, uh, one of the things that I, I let, let me start off and we'll pass it to John and then I'll go back, but I think the, one of the real difference on a, on a purpose and a mission is the purpose is really the, the, the core reason why you're here. And so if you start looking at a whole list of mission statements, you know, like for for example, the Midcontinent mission statements. Midcontinent Public Library's mission is to enrich our citizens and communities through expanding access to innovation, information, ideas, and inspiration. Well, key in that statement is that there's an assumption that the library as an institution is something that needs to be. Okay. The difference between a mission statement and a purpose statement is the purpose statement actually takes that step back and says, okay, justify the purpose of the library as an institution. So, so how can a library, because you could actually, I mean, some of these, some of these things that I just rattled off on our mission statement, you, I, I, you could find a bookstore that could do some of these things, or you could find a community college that could do these things. But what is the purpose of a library? And, and so we're actually asking people to take one step back, because I think all the assumptions on mission statements is that a mission statement assumes that a library is, uh, you, you know, it, it's here and it's organic and it's it's like it's like air and like grass. But but what John and I were discovering, particularly around 2008 2009, is that there were a lot of people who were saying, no, a library is not organic, and so let's not assume a world with a library. Yeah, I, for me, I'd, I'd summarize it basically by saying, you know, missions are something you are told to do, and a purpose is something you can't help to do. Missions have a beginning and ending, and but a purpose is built within and it never ends. And then a mission drives an organization a determined path, but a purpose really drives itself. So I, I am much more of a proponent of organizations discussing what Steve just said about what is their true purpose as opposed to what is their mission. Now, if you do it right, the mission and the purpose could be the same. Uh, one of my favorites is Pike Peaks Public Library. Uh, where they they call it um, seek engage transform, and it's one of my favorite favorite lines uh, mission statements that I've heard because it actually blends purpose and mission together. Right, and and I use that quite often with my clients. So in the introduction to the book, you. Um, talk about you quote Dickens and talk about the libraries are dealing with the worst of times and that's that 2008 period you're talking about there and uh, also comparing it to a chance that it's it's you have to look at it as an opportunity so it's an opportunity to transform libraries into the best of times and obviously that's the, kind of the whole book the point is to how to find that path to survival success and growth which is the subtitle but can you talk about um, what you mean about that of the worst of times that libraries are battling what what what's can you talk in more detail about that you mentioned it a little bit there but what are the kind of things that libraries have to fight against to get to this better times 
one of the things that I'll talk about uh, briefly on this, but uh, John's actually seen a lot more of this than I than I have, uh, just because he gets out and sees more libraries. Uh, but you know, one of the things that we started seeing, particularly uh, in 2008, um, you know, I'm on the ULC listserv, the Urban Libraries Council listserv, and I would uh, you know fire up my computer. Uh, and we'd hear stories about, you know, people would post something in and said, I just came into work and my city manager said I have to cut 48% of the budget today. I mean, <laughs> that's a pretty bad time. Uh, I mean, so there's no opportunity for planning. There's nothing. You just have to, you know, cut half of, you know, roughly half of everything that you're doing. I remember once I was dealing with, uh, here in Kansas City, I was sitting down and talking with a librarian on the Kansas side. It was her first day of work. She just she just come up from Wichita, and she was working at Kansas City, Kansas Public Library. Went through the entire interview process, and they said, "Okay, now that you're on board, we need you to uh, fire, or, or we're going to permanently we're going to permanently lay off. Um, you know, I think it was six people, and we're going to uh, and you need to fire nine people. And that was her first day of work. I mean, and and this was and part of this was just the the, the nature of the economy as it was back then um, and and so I mean things were really challenging and then you also I mean another interesting story that happened about the same time we were actually dealing with with a, a library supplier a vendor and and he was coming in and he was talking about how great it was this not 2008 this was closer to 2010 he was talking about how great it was that people had found their voice and people were protesting against taxes and you know this was the tea party movement is what he was talking about and um, and, then, and then he contacted me you know about a year later and said I've got to close up shop because all my contracts have gone away I mean he didn't realize that by protesting against taxes all of his libraries that were buying his stuff was not going to be able to buy his stuff anymore right. but that but that was uh, but there was this sort of you know, disconnect in this spiral that was that was just terrible that was going on, but you know, so so this set up a situation where people needed to be working on you know employing lean and employing processes like this. But one of the things that I think John and I've discovered as we've been working together is, you know, when we did our first process improvement program, that was in the era of like 2005, 2006. During the dot com, uh, during during the building bubble, when the economy was roar, roaring along pretty well, um, that we've seen bad economic times following 9/11. You know, during the during the 9/11 recession, and and libraries had bad times. That libraries um, have had, you know, that there's been steady growth. I mean, nothing really to write home about over the last you know three or four years, but but steady economic growth. But it's going to turn down again, and so. It's the the analogy I like to say is that is, is that we know that uh, you know like if you're getting out of shape and you have to go down and try on your tuxedo, you can't just run in and do five push-ups and then suddenly get into your tuxedo again. I mean, you you have to employ the whole idea of lean and process improvement, constant process improvement management, and constantly looking at how can we do this better so that we can free up capacity to do new things. It's it and it's something that you do during bad times, but you, it's also things that you do during good times. And and the ultimate uh, the ultimate outcome is that you free up capacity. Sometimes you free up capacity so you can keep the boat afloat. But sometimes you free up capacity so that you can do um, exciting new programs and services. For me, when uh, we sat down to, re to write this book, 
um, I put my consulting hat on, if you will, which, which I do often, obviously. And in this case, it was like, okay, well, if I were the CEO of the library world, uh, if there was such a position, and by the way, if there ever becomes a position, I, I want to put my hat in the ring. <laughs> the, uh, the thought I went through, I said, okay, if I'm the, if I'm the CEO of the library world, one of the first things you do is you look at the competitive situation of, of, of the organization. And obviously the first thing that jumps out is that you libraries are competing with some of the greatest organizations that were, have ever been on this planet in terms of competitiveness. And, and you've got Google and Netflix and Amazon, and, and we'll throw Barnes & Noble in there as a competitor as well. And I call them the Bain Group. And libraries are competing directly with these with these really strong, effective organizations. And your first reaction if you were the CEO of libraries go, holy cow, how are we going to survive against these guys? Because they're aggressive. I mean, if you really truly believe that Amazon wants um, their customers to take books out of the library versus buying it from them, well, you're wrong. Amazon wants them, wants your patrons to buy their books. And obviously Google wants uh, everyone to use their search engines and not necessarily libraries. So in terms of the worst of times, it, 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 there's a number of factors. One is, is Steve talked about the budget situation between 9-11 uh, and, and then the 2008 recession. And then uh, we're only now really coming out of it and the economy is booming. And I, I think Steve, I, I, we, Steve and I both believe strongly that libraries need to be careful not to get complacent and say, okay, the economy is doing well. Maybe we're getting some better funding than we were. Well, that doesn't change the fact that you still need to be lean. And the best analogy I can give is, he, Steve mentioned a boat. It's like, would you rather have a big, bulky boat uh, riding heavy in the water and trying to change its direction versus a streamlined, light boat that can change directions at a, a moment's notice? And the answer is you want the light boat, that light, streamlined boat that can adjust to the changing winds, if you will. Uh, and that's what lean is really about. So back to your question, uh, the worst of times is that Libraries during that period were under extreme, extreme challenges. And uh, again, as we mentioned earlier, you know, the future of this, this scared me. The future of libraries was, was a concern of mine. And watching, you know, staffs be reduced and the, the poor reference librarians no longer really having a, 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 being able to carry out their purpose because Google had become, you know, the one search engine approach. So that, to me, was, was the worst of times, the competition, you know, the budgets. And then on top of that, what happens in a, in a, what happens in a slower economy? The demand for libraries go up. Uh, you, so not only were you being pressured, libraries pressured to reduce their costs through staff reduction and staff hours and so forth, um, the demand, uh, a need from the, from the customer base was, was increasing. So um, it, it, it was a difficult time for libraries. And of course, you know, one of the reasons I wanted to write this book with Steve was because I needed to hear his voice. And his voice could be in this book. Having me say these words is one thing, but Steve, who lived through it, is another. And so that's why I thought it was powerful that he, we would join forces in writing this book. So we, I think we all agreed, especially that during that period, we were in that worst of times. Um, and we've slowly, we're slowly getting better. We're not, maybe not even, not, not even back to where we were back then, but we're, things are better overall. But sometimes when you're making big changes to get out of those worst of times, staff can be reluctant to make that change. And um, 
Can you talk about change management and how you can work with your staff to do that? And John, I know you have a story in the book about your honeymoon kitchen. That's a good illustration of this, if you wouldn't mind telling the listeners that story. Yeah, I'd be happy to tell that story. Um, It's it's a true story. Basically, um, I came home. uh, My wife worked. I worked. I was working for the consulting firm. We were fairly young. I think we were 22, 23 years old, right out of school both working and so i came home come home came home and my wife was cooking our spaghetti dinner um for us and i sat down at the at the uh, table and watched her cook and i watched her go to the refrigerator to get some hamburger meat and then i watched her go to uh, the cupboard to get some salt and then i watched her go to the utensil drawer to get a, a knife and then i saw her walk back to the refrigerator to get some onions and back to the cabinet for some for, for some spices and then back to the utensil drawer for a spoon and, and then on and on and on. And finally I said, honey, you know, if, if you kitted everything together or planned ahead of what you needed at each place, you could save yourself a whole lot of time cooking. Now at this point in most in my workshops, um, uh, I, I you know I'm usually talking to a, a, a room of librarians, which is probably 90, 95 percent women. You know, I expect to get things thrown at me, <laughs> and and I do get a lot of groans. Uh, and then I, and I tell them, I said, well, well, I did save my wife a whole lot of time cooking because I started doing the cooking, and then two weeks of hamburger helper, my wife took back over. Well, the good news <laughs> is I'm still married and very happily married. Um, but the reason I tell this story is because I want my clients to know that I'm not here to tell them what to do. That people don't like that this is their kitchen and people don't like you coming into their kitchen and telling them what to do. And, and that's not what, that's not what I do. And so what's important to me is that, and it, that was a valuable lesson I've carried with me throughout my life and my career. And the second lesson is that I've learned that in order for me to be successful, to have a successful change project, the people who are engaged and involved on a day-to-day basis with the processes that's going to be changed have to be heavily involved and have great ownership in the changes that are made. Because if they don't have ownership in that change, it will eventually fail. And I don't want to fail. And I want my clients recommending me to the next client, to the next client, to the next client. So I, I will not work in an environment in which I come in and say, I'll go interview people, write a report, hand it to the boss, and say, this is what you need to do, because it will fail. My projects are designed to have a cross-functional team with everyone involved uh, from the entire what I call service delivery chain, from the beginning of the service point to the end of the service point, Uh, like from when a customer places a hold to the time the hold's in their hands. It goes across a number of departments. A number of people have to be involved in that process to get that service event to the customer. And so I want to engage every person involved with that. So we'll form a cross-functional team with all those pieces of the puzzle and engage them in the process. And they go through a lean methodology of looking at it, analyzing it, understanding it, coming up with ways to improve it, reduce waste, reduce time, and ultimately improve customer service, which reduce cost. And the great thing about it is when it's, when it's done is that the, the cross-functional team has a full understanding and ownership of what was done so that when I leave, they continue to improve it. They continue to make that happen. And in fact, uh, my experience with Steve is right along those lines. We've had a number of projects like that. 
Yeah, I mean, that's what I was just thinking about. I mean, there's been several times where, where I've been able to look at a situation sort of from the director level, and and certainly lots of folks can do this, where you can look at this and go, man, there is something that's just not right. Uh, but but the bottom line is I can't sit in my office and say, okay, we're going to fix this, and this is how we're going to fix it. And, and, and there's there's an interesting, you know, I do have an interesting backstory in that, the only library, the only public library I've ever worked for is Midcontinent Public Library, and I, I've grown up in this organization. So, so there, I've been in many departments. I've had many different jobs and roles, and so there is an opportunity for me to just sort of jump in and say, um, you know, we're going to fix it. We're going to fix it this way, in part because I know that's what needs to be fixed because, you know, Seven years ago, I used to work in that department. I mean, you know, and so, so there's, there's an interesting dichotomy there. But the bottom line is, is that if I am now sitting in the director's office and I, and I mandate that this is what's going to happen, then there won't be buy-in and there will always be backsliding. And, and, we, and we have actually done that. I mean, some of, the, some of the process improvement that we did independently before we started engaging John, you know, we'd go back 18 months later and we'd discover, nope, we're right back where we started from, <laughs> you know, because, because there was just backslide and there wasn't necessarily the buy-in. But, but if you can get that buy-in, then, then what you discover is that it does tend to be more long-lasting. Um, the other thing that's been really important for us is to have the initial conversation, the preliminary conversation. So the first time that we have the conversation, it's not, it's not when we brought in John, and the first time that we're ever talking about this issue is, is you know, John sitting there and, and we're saying, okay, we're going to make a big change. I mean, we, we actually, you know, sat down and say, okay, we've, we've got an issue. We are identifying a problem. Here is the problem. This is the reason why it's a problem. This is why it's a big problem. Um, and, and so um, how are we going to do this? And, and even before we, you know, in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, okay, we may do a process improvement. We may do a performance audit. We may bring in John to work on something. But, in the, you know, that's in the back of my mind. But in all honesty, I'm going into the room with an open mind um, and, and letting the people in that department or branch kind of take some ownership and, and see if it's something that they can actually fix themselves and make sure that they understand that this is an issue. I've rarely run into a situation. There's only been a couple of times where, where after we kind of lay out the problem for our staff um, that the staff um, turns around and says, well, I don't see this as an issue. I mean, it, it doesn't happen. I mean, if you can successfully say, look, I'm getting pressure from our library board, that our auditors are, you know, if I can show them where the problem is and why it's a problem for me, oftentimes there's also an identifiable problem for the frontline staff as well. And so, um, so then it becomes not an issue of, you know, I was hired to do this 20 years ago, and I'm never going to change. <laughs> you know, which, which I've heard stories about people saying things like that. I haven't seen much of that around around here. What it tends to be, at the very, very most, probably the biggest amount of resistance is, well, why can't we just try doubling down on something we've already done? And and at that point, we just kind of have to, you know, point out, well, you know, we've been doing that. How has that been working out for us? And you know, obviously, if it was already working, um, 
then we wouldn't have the problem in the first place. And and that that does kind of lead into some of some of my feelings about libraries and, and and marketing issues. But but generally speaking, what we've what we've dealt with is um, you know, the idea of, of of ownership, making sure that people are on board and that they own the solutions. And um, and, and you know, there's there is going to be some backsliding. Absolutely. But in some cases, the backsliding just makes sense for your organization. The main thing is, is that you don't want to snap all the way back. And I've never seen that happen so long as you engage people in the process in the middle and at the beginning and at the end. And thus ends part one of our interview. Thanks to John and Stephen. We will pick it up again next episode where we will discuss dashboard metrics, marketing libraries, and sustainability. Circulating Ideas is produced by Steve Thomas in the suburbs of Atlanta. Views expressed on this show do not necessarily reflect those of my place or work or the place of work of guests. For past interviews, visit circulatingideas.com and subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Overcast, or your podcast app of choice. And help others find the show by leaving a rating or a review. You can follow the show on Twitter at CircIdeas or like the show's Facebook page. Music is by Pamela Klicka. Thanks for listening and keep circulating your ideas. Thanks again to Mometrics Test Preparation for sponsoring this episode of the podcast. To get 10% off your first purchase and a free demo, visit goelibrary.com and use that promo code podcast. That's goelibrary.com promo code podcast.